I'll usually ask everybody at the end of interviews, who else, who else do you think I should talk to? And sometimes people that you don't think are, you're going to get much out of, it could be incidental people to the story. Like if you didn't talk to them, it would be okay. Mm -hmm. But they turn out to have some of the most fascinating stories or tell you the one person you didn't think of. So you have to just keep talking to people and keep an open mind. Welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. While there are a ton of other leadership podcasts out there on the interwebs, this is the only one solely dedicated to developing undergraduate leaders in numerous fields. We bring in interesting leaders from a variety of disciplines and industries to dish out practical advice for entrepreneurial undergraduates embarking on their professional careers. You'll hear from leaders operating at all levels, CEOs and other C-suite individuals who are at the top of their industries, mid-career professionals only several years removed from their college days, and young leaders in school who are already doing amazing things. We feature leaders from business, diplomacy, education, journalism, engineering, law, medicine, and the sports world. It's all part of our mission here at the Bucino Leadership Institute. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, everybody. My name is Ashley Howard, a junior journalism major and student in the Bucino Leadership Institute. And today, I will be your host. For this episode, we are thrilled to have Alvin Paul as our guest. Alan Paul is a two-time New York Times best-selling author. His last two books, 2019's Texas Buzz, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan, and 2014's One Way Out, The Inside Story of the Alvin Brothers Band, both debuted in the New York Times nonfiction hardcover bestsellers list. We will talk about them later on. But for now, Alan Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So first, let's go back to where it all started. When attending the University of Michigan, what was your major and how did the university contribute to your success? Oh, good question. I just filled out a survey from the University of Michigan from the program I was in, so it's fresh in my mind. I, was, I went to the University of Michigan Residential College, which is like a liberal arts program designed to be a small college within the university, which was really a great program for me. I was a creative writing major for two years and I switched over and ended up being a social sociology major, basically. And um, I still did a lot of creative writing, but I was getting more and more involved with the newspaper and with journalism. And I liked the writing part, but I didn't think I was all that creative. So I dropped creative writing, <laughs> although I still, I still did it. And I recently pulled out some of my stories from that time and they were better than I thought. So maybe I should have kept doing it. <laughs> So a few years after graduating, you took, a, you took a job as a managing editor for Guitar World. What were some of your day-to-day -day duties with that job? Right. Well, in between, that was about three years after I graduated. And I only mentioned that because the, the, some of the things I did in the ensuing years helped me out a, a lot when I did start that job. Um, I started actually in Hoboken. That was when I first came to uh, the New Jersey area, working um, at a small chain of weekly newspapers called the Hoboken Reporter. And um, I did a, a lot of stuff there, including covering city council meetings and editing this little weekly. I moved to Florida for a year and I did a lot of freelancing and I even did sports reporting. I covered high school basketball games and I did all kinds of stuff. And I just say all that because so when I started working at Guitar World about three or four years after I graduated, I had had that experience. And it's unfortunate that the local newspaper world has shrunk so much because those papers really were good training and really like the basics of journalism, who, what, when, where, why mm -hmm. um, you had to get it. And even covering like high school 
baseball game, which sounds like so boring, but it was kind of fun. And I really learned how to write on deadline and quickly. And, you know, that was pre-internet. So I had to actually like get on a phone and call in the story to a copy editor. So you had to write briefly and, and, you know, quickly. So that was really good training. When I started at Guitar World, um, the managing editor job at a magazine is a sort of a management job in the sense that you, you're ultimately responsible for like the production, meeting deadlines, being the liaison between um, the editorial staff and the art director, um, making sure proofreading. And we had a pretty small staff. I also did a lot of writing and, and worked with reporters a lot. So I did a little bit of everything. And, and, and that also was great training and great experience. It's you know, still really useful to me now. So you've been working as a senior writer for Guitar World for the past 25 years. Can you talk about the culture of the company that had an impact on your longevity there? Wow, that's a good question. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not staffed with Guitar World now. Um, I was for a really long time. So in terms of longevity, I mean, I mean I've done it this long enough now and I have enough interesting contacts that I'm useful to them because I can get people and and my name on a story in that world still means something <laughs> and it's good for me because it keeps me in the loop and and you know guitar world is a magazine that still means a lot to people who are who are guitarists <laughs> and so it's important to be in there and so it's it's kept me sort of um in, in the mix um in terms of the culture of the company um it's changed over the years because it's on about its fourth owner I think since since I started maybe fifth <laughs> um, and so things have changed a lot but what stayed the same is is just a respect for the art of creating music and, and playing guitar and and I appreciate that and I respect that and so um, I write for a lot of people but still whenever I write something for Guitar World it's kind of like putting on your favorite t-shirt it just mm -hmm. feels so comfortable um, and, and easy for me so there's it's something really nice about that. So in 2005, you became a columnist for the Wall Street Journal online. What is one thing that you enjoyed most about that experience? Right. Well, that was an interesting experience for me because I had just moved to China from Maplewood to Beijing. I, I, that's when I, I was on staff at Guitar World until that time. And I, I quit my job to do that. I didn't know exactly what I was going to do there. It was a little bit risky, but um, my wife is also a journalist and she had gotten hired she, she was an editor at the Wall Street Journal. She got hired as the, she got a new job as the China bureau chief. Mm -hmm. And I quit everything I was doing to go there. I just kind of felt like there was an opportunity to, to do something really wild and different and that it would be hopefully really fun and exciting. And I thought worst case scenario, if we really don't like it, it still will be a good experience. And I'll, I'll, like, I'll be smarter and stronger on the other end of it for having had it. Um, and, and so I just kind of threw myself out there and... Um, I had this idea of writing a column. I didn't know if it would really work or not. <laughs> I started keeping a blog uh, just for my own uh, self. It was sort of like a public journal and for friends and family back home so they could sort of see what we were up to in our new adventures in, in Beijing. And I kind of just stumbled into the fact that people liked it, basically. And so um, I took some of my sort of columns, blog posts I had written that I thought were the most interesting and people had responded to the most and I edited them and submitted them as, as columns and they accepted them. So it was just a great experience for me um, because I had been writing primarily about music and sports. I also was a senior writer for Slam, 
magazine for many years uh, and write that was in the middle of it. Um, but I hadn't really written about my life or life in general or being a parent at that point. By then I had three children and a lot of interesting things happen when you're a parent. <laughs> and this gave me an opportunity to write about all of it and, and about my experiences in China. So it, it really was kind of a transformative time for me. So as a follow-up, what skills did you gain from having that opportunity? Well, I learned, um, I, learned I gained a lot of skills from that. So it's, it's, it's hard to answer, not because it's hard to think of what, but how to, it's hard to narrow it down. Um, I got better and better, I, th I think, as a columnist, because I, I learned the difference in my mind between being a blogger and a columnist was to have sort of a theme and a structure and not just write about kind of the cool experience that I had, which is what I, I sort of started out doing. And because I was in Beijing and I was sort of throwing myself out there into the world, some of my experiences were interesting enough <laughs> that they could carry a column. But uh, as it went on, I, I learned how to really think a little bit more critically and, and put things into a narrative structure um, and how to write about myself and my experiences in ways that weren't self-centered if that makes any sense, because it wasn't like, look at me, look at me. It was, I did this interesting thing and here's why it's interesting and why it might be of interest to you. And and I liked it because it, it also just kept me really adventurous in China because I had to keep, <laughs> I had to keep having things to write about. So I never got, I never got too bored or settled into a routine, which is something that can happen in, in, in any situation when you get used to it. Things, things that seem so fascinating start to seem second hand or normal so you just take them for granted and i avoided that by by writing the column okay so the first book you wrote was big in china can you describe a bit of the background and how important it was to be able to tell your story yeah so big in china was an outgrowth of what we were just talking about it it, it captured i wrote about the three and a half years my family lived in china and everything is an outgrowth of everything else. Like I never would have written the book if I hadn't written the column. I never would have written the column if I hadn't written the blog. <laughs> so it was like a step-to-step -step process. Uh, it was wonderful for me to be able to write the book for a lot of reasons. Um, one, it, it was my first book and I'm not sure I would have written the second and third book if I had never written the first, even though they, they were sort of logical things for me to do that were a continuation of my of my whole career. Um, I still needed that experience and, and confidence of writing the first book and realizing that I could do it and how to do it. it. And it was on a personal level, it was great because it just helped me wrap up my experience and analyze it a little bit. So the experience that I had in China was so life-changing for me that I would have wanted to write a book even if nobody wanted to buy or read the book. Um, it would have just been a good thing for me to do to, to sort of understand my experience myself. So I was very fortunate that I was able to do that in, in a way that actually got published and sort of put me on the map as, as a book author. And again, everything that I've done since that sort of came out of that. Thank you. So what were some of the challenges of raising three American children in Beijing? Well, the, <laughs> my son just came home from work. He's, he's 20 a junior in college and he was he was five when we first moved over there so it's been a, it's been a while some of the advantages some of the things that were easier about raising children in Beijing than New Jersey was that um, we lived in a um, sort of expat compound um, so we had a lot of friends who were nearby it was very social 
we called it after a while, I, I joked in, in my book that it was like college with money. It, and it was like college in the sense that it felt like living in a dorm because all of our friends were right there. Um, and, and everybody's life was sort of simplified compared to what, what it is here in, in the suburbs. Like if you work in New York and you have friends and you live in Maplewood and one of them lives in Morristown and one of them lives in White Plains, you might see each other like, once every six months or something. It's like really complicated. Kids have little league and dance and this and that. And mm -hmm. all of our lives was sort of simplified there. We, we went to work, we came home, we lived in these places together. Nobody had families. Um, you know, we're blessed to have some, a lot of extended family on my side in New Jersey. Um, and it's really great, but we're, we all have obligations all the time. You know, it's some auntie's birthday <laughs> something. Uh -huh. And it's great. It's like a blessing for our kids to grow up with that. But um, being over there liberated from that, you, you become very, very dependent on your friends. We were each other's family. And so the relationships are, are very intense. Um, social life was, was really great. Like, more so because we all had childcare. We all lived in the same place. We would just bring our kids over. There wasn't a lot of driving or traveling or taking trains and buses. Mm -hmm. So um, that part of it was, was easier. Some of the challenges were, were, were the same things. Like we were far away from our families. There were times like in the first year I was there, my father got uh, bladder cancer um, and was really sick for, for a while. It was really hard to be far away from him. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard to have events or, or things, birthdays, and, and and not have any family around, not be able to share it with them. Um, it was sometimes hard to explain to the kids things that we could do or, or couldn't do. <laughs> um, uh, it, it was challenging in that way, but we we also just embraced it, and we we traveled as much as we could. Um, and got out into the countryside and did, did kind of wild and crazy things um, in, in China that some people with young kids um, backed off of doing, but I, I think it was really rewarding. So besides leading um, Big in China, you were also the leader of Friends of the Brothers. What is it or what is it or was it like leading not one but two bands? Right. Well, I still have both the bands. You know, it's really it's really fun. I feel really lucky that I could do that. Um, before I was in China, I, I didn't really perform in bands. Um, I played guitar, played guitar for a long time, and you know, worked in guitar world. And I've always sat in with friends' bands, so it's not like I had never performed, but I've never really had my own bands and was out there as a front person. I just kind of stumbled into it in China, and we did really well. That was the name of my book, Big in China. It was sort of a joke. Of, there's a Tom Waits song, Big in Japan, that that's like a joke about um, a musician who sang like, yeah, my career never took off here at home, but I'm big in Japan. And, and the narrator in that song is you are led to believe is is lying you know he's not really big in japan it's it's kind of a, a joke and so um so big in china was sort of my jokey name for the book but then um people liked it so i kept it um and then when i came back i i kept performing mm -hmm. and i was getting ready to put the book out so i just named my band big in china because i thought um why well, try to <laughs> promote two names and that's been really fun. That's that's with um, three friends in Maplewood. Um, we play around a lot. We're playing April 24th at Suzy Q's in West Orange. <laughs> Outside, come on by. I'll buy you a drink if you're 21. <laughs> uh, and um, 
Friends of the Brothers is is we play the music of the Almond Brothers band, um, and and the musicians in that band are they're all my friends, but they're they're really great musicians. Um, the other key members of the band uh, all played with one of the members of the Almond Brothers and played with the Almond Brothers um, for the most part. And we started as a tribute to uh, Butch Trucks, who was the drummer of the Almond Brothers. When he died, I, I put together a tribute band um, just for a one a one time thing to celebrate his life. He's somebody I had been very close with, um, and I, I was very upset and sad when he died, and I wanted him to be honored. Um, and then basically we had such a good time playing together that we decided to do it again and, and it became a band. So I feel honored to play with those guys. They're, they're great musicians, um, some of the best, and they have to let me play with the band because I formed it. So they're stuck with me. Well, your second book, One Way Out, the inside history of the Almond Band Brothers, uh, the Almond Brothers Band was the first one to debut in the New York Times uh, bestsellers list. What were some of the emotions you experienced with this huge accomplishment? Well, <laughs> I was really, really happy. It was a huge personal accomplishment. And I, I could say this about both of the books um, with, with getting into the bestsellers list. Um, I, I not only felt a huge sense of personal accomplishment, but, but I really honestly felt uh, was bigger than me. I felt really proud to have the Allman Brothers and then Stevie Ray Vaughan to see their names in the bestsellers list. Um, because they're artists and, and musicians who's, I, I really dedicated my whole career to promoting them and to promoting this type of music. And I felt this way in China. Um, I, I would play their music there and I would play uh, music of blues guys like Johnny Copeland and also Bob Dylan and, and Little Milton Campbell. And some of these guys are pretty obscure. Uh, you've probably never heard of them. And a lot of the people listening probably haven't. But to me, they are like American giants. Like they, they're like more important than the Beatles or, or the Rolling Stones to me. So I felt proud to play their music in China. And I would always like say their names if I played one of their songs. And I felt the same way about getting them in the bestsellers list. Like mm -hmm. it was a great accomplishment, not just for me, but for the music I, I, I love. And, um, you know, I mean, it was it was just really big. It was like a validation um, that I dedicated so much of my life um, to this music and to understanding it and, and promoting it. I mean, I, I don't think of myself as a promoter. I'm, I'm a journalist, but it's just part of, you know, if you're writing about an artist, you are in fact promoting it. So, um, you know, it's just something that's been a big part of my life. And so that the fact that there were enough people out there who cared, it, it felt it felt really it felt really wonderful. And the second time when, when I heard about Stevie Ray Vaughan, when I got the phone call from my editor to tell me, it was in the summer, the book came out in August, 2019. So it was in late August and there was a thunderstorm right as he called me. It was like so loud, I could barely hear him. It was one of those kind of crazy storms that comes out of nowhere and like the windows were rattling and there's big booms of mm -hmm. thunder. And, and it was, um, kind of wild. And so I, I hung up the phone and I went outside to tell my family, I couldn't find them. I went downstairs to tell my family, I couldn't find them. They were all outside. So I stepped out and across the street from our house, there was a double rainbow. It had just stopped. And uh, I, I felt overwhelmed <laughs> looking at that rainbow. I, I, got, I got pretty teary and uh, I felt like the late Stevie Ray Vaughan was smiling at me. So, and, and I'm not someone who really thinks that way. I don't talk about like spirits talking to me or something, but the fact that this crazy 
lightning storm hit just as I got the phone call and then it ended and there was a double rainbow. Whether it meant anything or not in the cosmic uh, sense, I don't know, but it meant a lot to me in that moment. So it was noted that you interviewed over 100 people for the book. How was that experience and were they easy to get in contact with? Okay, so there's no there's no easy answer to that because some of them are easy, were easy to get a hold of and many of them were not. Um, and then there's always a few that get away. You know, there's people to this day, there's a handful of people in both of those books who I really bugs me that I didn't get. Um, but, you know, it builds on itself. It really builds on itself. So as you do it, I, I have, especially with the Allman Brothers, I had written about them for 25 years. And so I had a lot of interviews to start with. And so I could go back to people I had interviewed. There were a handful of people who were deceased um, who I was lucky enough to have interviewed. So I, I was happy I had that. And then I go back to the people and I had written enough about them that the people trusted me. They went into it thinking it was safe to talk to me, basically. I, I was going to be fair and, and honest. And I'll usually ask everybody at the end of interviews, who else, who else do you think I should talk to? Mm-hmm. And they would often have an idea and sometimes they could help me get that person and so it's like a puzzle it's like a game so so you know you interview him and ask and she he tells you her and then you interview her and she tells you him and some of those people are dead ends like you can't get them to return your phone calls or emails or whatever and then you go back to the person and you say could you let them know that i'm trying to get a hold of them or you know because uh, some people won't answer a phone not call if they don't know the numbers so you better tell them so it's really a long process and, and a puzzle piece and some of them are, are super easy and, and some of them aren't and uh sometimes people that you don't think are, you're going to get much out of um they it could be incidental people to the story like if you didn't talk to them it would be okay mm-hmm. but they turn out to have some of the most fascinating stories or tell you the one person you didn't think of so you have to just keep talking to people and keep an open mind. Um, there are some people that I, you know, interviewed for two hours and I only used one line from them, but it was like an incredible line. It really like helped me understand. So there's also a lot of that where, where you do a lot of, spend a lot of time interviewing someone that doesn't end up in the book, but, but the conversation helps me understand the topic better, helps me understand something better. Um, because I, I think any good biography, what you read, what you put in the, what, what I as a writer and you as a reader see, what I put in the book and you see is, is just a fraction of what you know. Um, it's like the tip of the iceberg and the rest of the iceberg is in your head. But um, you have to have that in order to understand it. So trying to synthesize everything and understand what, what happened uh, is a complicated thing. So with the Allman Brothers, it's like a 45 year career with probably off the top of my head, 15 members uh, coming and going. So Steve Ray Vaughan is a little bit easier in the sense that it's one person's uh, career. And there's a lot of other people who come and go, but it's one storyline, one arc. So going into that, your most recent book that we just talked about, Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan also was recognized as a New York Times bestseller. Um, I just want to know what was Vaughn's relationship to you and how did you know him? Right. So I never met Stevie Ray Vaughn. He died in 1990, just as my career was getting started. If he had lived even another year, I probably would have met him uh, through Guitar World. He was the type of music I was covering. So I just knew him as as a fan of his music. And I luckily saw him uh, perform and 
Um, I co-wrote Texas Flood with with uh, Andy Allardt, who's a good friend of mine, and we worked at Guitar World together for years. Um, and Andy knew Stevie Ray Vaughan and had interviewed him five times. So after the success of a One Way Out, my editor one kept bugging me to do another one, to do something, and he kept bugging me. And um, I was thinking about who I would want to write about, and I kept thinking about Stevie Ray because writing one of these books is like a very intensive operation for me. I get really in depth for about two years. So I can't do it about someone whose music I don't really like um, and I don't care about and think is worthwhile with all that time and attention. And it has to be a really good story because it, you know ultimately it is a book. It's not just music, it's a book. So it has to be the compelling music with a compelling story that I don't think has been told adequately. And, and, and the Allman Brothers and Stephen Ray Vaughan both um, had had one decent book written like 25 years prior, but they, they were not really good enough. And a lot of stuff had happened since. Through Guitar World, I had relationships with um, Steve Ray Vaughan's bandmates and with his brother, Jimmy, who also is a great guitar player. And I had gotten to know him pretty well, uh, writing about him and also about Stevie. So I had that basis to start. Um, but I knew that to, to do it right, I needed the interviews with Stevie. So I went and asked um, Andy, who's my friend, I said, I'd like to do this book. I want your Stevie Ray Vaughan interviews. <laughs> if you are open to working on this for a year or two, let's do it together. Mm -hmm. And if you're not, I'll, let's work out a deal for me to, to use your interviews and figure out how to give you credit. And, but we never had to figure that out because he did want to do it. And so we, we did it as partners. And writing, writing a book with another person had its own challenges. It was hard sometimes. <laughs> Um, but I, it was also good. And I, I think it made for a better book because it was like having an editor as you went. I mean, anything he wanted to put in, I had to approve. And anything I wanted to put in, he had to approve. And so we would fight over things sometimes and argue a little bit. But it, it, it made us be really thoughtful. Nothing was just happened to be there. Everything had a purpose that had to be defended. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was sometimes hard, but it, I, I really do think it made for a better book. So in the midst of COVID, what does your job look like? And are your band members still able to meet virtually? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'll answer the second one first. Uh, no, not, not really. We haven't been able to meet virtually. We, we do a little bit um, in the fall before it got too cold. We played a couple of times outside. We played in one of our garages um, with the with the door open and separated and wearing masks uh -huh. um, so we were able to do that we played outside we we rehearsed and we set up and then we played um, three shows two at Suzy Q's and one in the park and it was really really nice to play music because we didn't none of us had played music with another person for about I guess six months and now we sort of haven't again but now that it's warming up and we're all starting to get vaccinated <laughs> at different rates here um, so by the end of April, we'll all be vaccinated and we're, and we're playing at Suzy Q. So I'm really excited about that. My job, I mean, a, a lot of what I do is working from home anyhow. So it hasn't affected it that much. But um, a lot of interviews that I would sometimes do in person, I've done on phone or on Zoom. And, and the, the, the part of my job that's being in a band has sort of stopped. Like, like I, I just said, what we've been doing when being in China. So we've been able to do some stuff at least. Um, Friends of the Brothers haven't played since March 10th, 2020, which was the day before everything went crazy. Um, right. we, we played, our last show was a, a big giant um, pre-party for a brother show at Madison Square Garden. 
And so March 10th, we played in a packed club. And then I went to Madison Square Garden. And then the next day, everything went crazy. And I, I was really scared for two weeks <laughs> until I got out of that clearance because I had been in these large crowds. Um, and and some, no one in, in Friends of the Brothers got sick. Um, there were people who were at the concert and at, at that party who did get sick and, and a couple who, who died that I know of. So wow. I feel really lucky uh, for myself and my bandmates that it, it wasn't any of us or we didn't bring it home to our family members because we were way too close to something that could have happened. So really looking forward to playing with them again. We, we don't have anything scheduled yet, but things are starting to open up with some outdoor shows. And I think by this summer, we will at least get to play a little bit. So our last two questions are going to be like leadership based. So the first of the two, do you have any recommendations on books that aspiring leaders should read? Oh boy. No, that's too broad of a question because there's so many and it just depends on your interests. I think the main thing I would say is just read books um, because uh, it's hard. To, it's even hard for me. I, I found during this pandemic to focus on on books as much. Um, I think we all have ADD um, now, and and not to make light of people who really do have it, but it's mm -hmm. infected all of us to some extent because we're on screen so much. I've even found myself reading on a Kindle more. I still find it easier than with like a paper book, which has not usually been how I am. So if I'm like that, I assume other people are as well. <laughs> I think just keep reading. It's so important to read, not only because I won't make any money if nobody buys my books, but for, for writers, obviously we need readers but I think reading changes your mind it opens you learn things you 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 relax your blood pressure drops so I think it's a really really important thing it's one of the things that makes us human you know um, we have opposable thumbs the ability to to love and have empathy for other people and and we know how to read and write you know dogs don't read each other books um they do a lot of other great things and you know monkeys whatever but we can write books and we can read books and i think it's really important so and the final question who is someone that you would consider a leader that you follow on social media or have a as a connection on linkedin maybe this sounds really corny but you know i look for direction and talk to all the time my wife <laughs> rebecca blumenstein um i think that's sort of a probably a cop-out because I certainly don't follow her on LinkedIn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, social media is, is interesting. You know, Facebook is really important to me. Uh, my career, I think it's really helpful for promoting the bands. Probably really a big part of how I was able to get the word out enough to make those books get on the bestsellers list. But I think also, you know, some of the dangers of it have become pretty apparent where people are just, you know, talking to each other. Um, I sometimes talking to people who already have their own beliefs and, and I think there's a political danger there. So I've tried to scale back a little bit and I use Twitter a lot, almost as a news source. I just like to see what's going on and I'm constantly finding links. So my um, tw Twitter leaders are, tend to be like really mainstream things like from the New York Times and the Washington Post and some music, you know, Rolling Stone for music stuff and some blues accounts I follow and like for sports teams like the Pittsburgh Steelers and people mm -hmm. who cover them and stuff. So I'm pretty like utilitarian with that. You know, I follow like things that I, I want to learn about and know about. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Alan Paul, for coming on the podcast. And to our listeners out there, we'll see you soon. Thank you. On behalf of everyone at the Bucino Leadership Institute, 
I'd like to thank all of our podcast listeners, the podcast team, as well as 89.5 WSOU Pirate Radio for allowing us to use their facilities. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership and on Twitter at Shu Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.